If you haven't already, turn with me to the book of Colossians. Um, We, for the past several months, have been in this series entitled Preeminent. And preeminent means first place, seeing God in first place in every aspect of our lives. That's, that could be, that's the theme, really, of Colossians. Um, and seeing how that uh, it's worked out in all of the world, whether it's through uh, spirits, whether it's through uh, our marriages and, and our child rearing and our workplaces, we want to see Christ's name made preeminent in all of our lives. And as we are coming in to the... the uh, uh, the hub, if you will. We're, we're, we're coming down. We've, the airplane has landed. We are taxiing into the terminal. Um, we are left with this last set of uh, kind of Paul's instructions. And Paul, Paul likes to name drop, usually at the end of his, uh, his, his uh, epistles, where he writes to encourage different people, to thank different people, to give some last-minute instructions. And sometimes when we read through these, we're like, well, I I don't understand that name. I can't pronounce that. And let's just skip through this and get to the next book. And we shouldn't. We should really stop and park and see what's going on here. Because when he does that, he's, he's giving us an, an entire insight into something pretty amazing. And we're going to see that these are relatively ordinary people that God has used to do extraordinary things. And that's God's MO. God likes and loves, delights in, using, in, in doing things unexpectedly. I mean, if you think about it, he, he does things completely against what we would sometimes think and do. He uses everyday people to help change the world. I mean, after all, he chose a childless and very old Abraham and Sarah to be the father and mother of nations. I mean, that was pretty phenomenal in and of itself. He plucked a Jewish slave out of an Egyptian prison to be the prime minister of Egypt. He used the seventh son of a shepherd to be the king of Israel. And then, most of all, he sent his son to assume the flesh of a poor Jewish carpenter born to a teenage girl and boy in a backwoods town. And it was that son who surrounded himself with 12 ordinary men, men just like you and me, to change the world. And sometimes we think of these guys as just so angelic with with big giant halos around their head, and we fail to realize that they were everyday people that God chose to help change the world. God changes the world through ordinary people still, people like you and me. Rarely does he use that college professor or the Wall Street broker or the business magnate or star athlete or celebrity to change the world. He uses us, everyday people sharing their lives, talking and telling other people about who Jesus is. That's what God does. And he's still doing it today. And he wants to do it more and more. See, we've reached the end of this series, and as we spent the last several months looking and walking through this wonderful book, expounding the great mysteries of who Christ is and how he is to be preeminent over all our lives, today as we come to the end, we need to to really stop and look and see what the characteristics are of these world changers. Why is Paul giving them to us? Why is he speaking truth into their lives and sharing their story with us? Because I believe in looking at these individuals, we're going to find the secret to becoming a world changer through them. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come before you, admiring you in all of your greatness all of your love, all of your awesome majesty, knowing that you are the God who does the unexpected. And Lord, we know that you delight in using us, your people, frail, fearful, as broken as we are. 
Lord, you delight in changing us and using us for the glory of your name so that this world may know who you are. So Lord, today, as we look in this passage that you have spoken through your servant, the Apostle Paul, may we truly understand, marvel, and apply the truths therein so we might go forth to truly be the world changers you have purposed and desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump into our text. Paul drops several names. We're not going to be able to go through all of them, but you're going to see Tychicus. You're going to see um, Onesimus, which we're actually going to be talking about um, at the end of this month. We're going to be jumping into a new series on Philemon, um, which will be focusing on him. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him today. Other individuals such as Aristarchus, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, uh, Jesus, who is called Justice, and Epaphras, as well as Luke and Demas and a, a woman named Nympha. Now, again, we're not going to be able to highlight all of them, but looking at all of them together as a corporate whole, we can see that they had helped partner with the Apostle Paul to make the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ known. So if we're to really understand, first of all, what it means to be a world changer, we have to understand that changing the world involves each one of us becoming a ministry partner with God. Each one of us in this room. It's interesting, and we've talked about this several times. God doesn't ask us, or He didn't ask our help in creating the world, the heavens and the earth. He didn't ask our opinion on how animals should be made, or how the ocean should be divided, or how the land should come together. What He asked us to do was share His name. That's what he asked us to partner with him. Go and make disciples of all nations. He could have done it all by himself, but he delights in using us. And he wants us to partner with him to make his name known all over the world. And these are individuals that partnered with Paul to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's start off with Tychicus. He is, Paul describes him, and he gives him a very wonderful uh, I mean, just wonderful praise. He says he's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. Then he goes on to Onesimus and says that he is a faithful and beloved brother. Now he's looking for people who are beloved brothers, those who are faithful, which means dependable, trustworthy. See, if we're to be ministry partners, that it involves us having character, that counts. See, when God comes into us and he invites us to to work for him, he doesn't just want us to preach and not have it affect our daily lives. God wants to get down into the dirty work, the daily parts of our lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, changing our attitudes, how we think, how we act. It's not just about raising your hands and praising the Lord. It's how we are outside of the walls of this church. God wants all of us. And he wants character that counts. That's why he's saying he's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He is trustworthy because God has changed him from the inside out. I want you to have character that counts. Now, many of us don't want that. We just want to praise the Lord, get the blessings, and go on with our life and have God on Sunday and not any other day of the week. And I'm reminded of a story uh, of a woman who was going to the gym, and she, she came in and she was all ready to work out. She was dressed up in her workout clothes. She came in with, she had an iPod ready to go, her headphones plugged in, she had her water, she's got her sneakers on, she comes in, she, she goes into the stretching area, and she starts stretching out. She's re- I mean, this woman looks like she is, she is a workout monster. The way she is dressed, you could tell that she's been there before. And she goes and sits down on one of the machines, she, uh, or actually sits down on the machine, puts her hands on it, 
does five reps and goes, whoa, that's tough. Let's call it a day. And takes the towel and walks out. See, the reality is, is she's, she's, she's posing. You know, it looks like she was great, but her, her workout really didn't match how she was dressed and what she made herself look like. See, a lot of Christians are like that. We come in, we sing songs. We, we praise the Lord. We, we talk about how great God is, but when circumstances get tough, we abandon God right away. See, God wants us to understand that he's going to send, uh, he wants us to, to not just sing the right songs, not just talk the right talk, but he wants to build real strength, and that requires real effort and a little sweat. He wants to get down into the essence of who we are. See, God figures that we will not voluntarily go to a spiritual gym, so he brings the gym to us. He brings adverse circumstances, cross-bearing situations, difficult scenarios, and problematic encounters. They serve all as opportunities for Christian growth because God wants to change your character. He wants to make you look more like Him. So we need to see, we need to see that it involves having the right character, a character that counts. And it also involves having a commitment to service, a commitment to service. See, Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We were bought with a price, and our life is now to be characterized by service. Notice the words that Paul uses, faithful minister, fellow servant. The word minister is diakonos. It means waiter, one who serves, one who runs an errand. And the word for servant is sundalos, meaning one who belongs to the same master. They understood that they were partnering with Paul, but they had a task to do, and they were to serve Christ by serving other people. See, we can see from the context that these are people who are committed to serving the Lord, and that meant serving one another. Why do we think as Christians that we're not going to serve? Why do we think that we can just come in and be anonymous and go on in our own way and not serve and give ourselves sacrificially? The reality is, is that many of us have been burned. We don't like dealing with difficult people or difficult circumstances or, or people that don't appreciate who we are. So rather than work through that, we just pull back and stay in our own little comfort zone saying, I'm saved, I don't have to worry about anything else. See, God has called us to serve. Appliances don't serve themselves. Think about that for a moment. Toasters don't eat their own toast. Refrigerators don't cool the food that they're going to eat. Stoves don't eat the food that they cook. A microwave doesn't digest the food that it radiates. Can openers don't want what is in the can they open. Appliances are there to serve somebody else, and we benefit from their calling. See, God has assigned you a divine purpose. And your fulfillment of that purpose should result in a benefit to others. God made us to serve, and we are most Christ-like when we're serving others. Let's look at verse 8. Paul says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. See, Paul is in in prison. He's writing to uh, the church at Colossae. But he is sending now his servants because they've come to him. They've come around him, even though he's in jail. He has some measurable freedom. And he's saying that, I'm sending him to you that you may know how we are, to give a report of what's going on, and that he may encourage your heart. See, if we're to be a ministry partner, then it requires us cheering other people on, encouraging others. We all need encouragement. People who lift us up when we are down, people who encourage us to press on, to continue on in the fight. It's amazing what encouragement does. Have you ever had someone encourage you? Think about the people that affected you most, positively. Are they not the person, people that cared enough to talk to you, to encourage you, to lift you up, to, to say, hey, keep going, it's all right, you're doing great, to really build you up? I mean, I can't tell you how many people that I have encountered that need encouragement. It's, it's epidemic. 
Words are powerful things. I wish I could tell you how many times I have sat across a son or daughter who was still dealing with the verbal and emotional scars from one of their parents. Either their mother or their father said they were worthless, that they were nothing, that they wished they had ever been born. They never said that they loved them. I wish I could communicate the anguish, the turmoil, the tears, not just in parenting, but of a, of a spouse who is dealing with the cutting words of their husband or wife. Words are powerful things, and every single person in this room has the power to use their words to build up or break down, to heal or to hurt. See, there's a story about a, a woman named Mary. She had grown up knowing that she was different from the other kids that she interacted with. She hated it. See, she was born with a cleft palate. And it had to bear the jokes and stares of cruel children who teased her relentlessly about her misshaped lip, crooked nose, and garbled speech. And with all the teasing, Mary grew up hating the fact that she was different. She was convinced that no one outside her family could ever love her until she entered Mrs. Leonard's class. Mrs. Leonard, Mrs. Leonard had a warm smile, a round face, and, a shi- and shiny brown hair. And while everyone in her class liked her, Mary came to love Mrs. Leonard. And it was interesting, in, in, in the 1950s here in the U.S., it was common for teachers to give their children an annual hearing test. However, in Mary's case, in addition to her cleft palate, she was barely able to hear out of one ear. Determined not to let the other children have another difference to point out, she would cheat on the test every year. The whisper test was given by having a child walk to the classroom door, turn sideways, close one ear with her finger, and then repeat something which the teacher had whispered. Mary turned her, head, her bad ear towards her teacher and pretended to cover her good ear. She knew that teachers would often say things like, the sky is blue, or what color are your shoes? But not on that day. Surely God put seven words into Mrs. Leonard's mouth that changed Mary's life forever. When the whisper test came, Mary heard the words, I wish you were my little girl. See what encouragement does? What life it gives. The heart that it can change. We all need that encouragement. We all need those words from God that says, well done, good and faithful servant. I love you. And we need to encourage each other. Words are powerful. They have the power to transform a heart, to mend a relationship. What words are you using? What words are you saying to your kids, to your spouse? See, I know that there are many in this room who have grown up in situations that words were only used to tear down, to tell you that you were worthless, that you were a burden, or that you would never amount to anything. Let me give you some words that go a long way to kids. Okay, if you've never had it done well, let me give you some words that you can use with your kids. These three are very powerful. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're special. You bring me joy. I'm praying for you. I'm behind you. I knew you could do it. What a good helper. You're special to me. I trust you. What a treasure. Hooray for you. Beautiful work. You're a real trooper. Well done. That's so creative. Give me a big hug. You're a good listener. You figured it out. I love you. You're responsible. You remembered. You're the best. You sure tried hard. I've got to hand it to you. I couldn't be prouder of you. You're wonderful. I'm behind you. You're God's special gift, and I'm here for you. That's for your kids if your kids are little. This one's for your spouse. I love you. I'm proud of you. What you did make me feel good. 
Thank you for loving me. Thank you for your patience. I thank God for you. I'm so glad I chose you. You are special. You are smart. You are beautiful. I respect you. Thank you for helping me, and I appreciate you and see how hard you are working. Those are pretty encouraging words. We need to use our words to build up, not to break down. We must know how to wield and use them for the glory of God. Encouraging is not the only thing that we do. Sometimes we have to go the other way. We need to make sure that we are comforting others. Comforting others. Look, look at verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision. Now, Paul's saying these are the only Jewish uh, believers that are with me. He's now working with Gentiles and among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. It's interesting when Paul talks about this being a comfort to him. It's not that the other believers weren't, but I believe that there was something that was so essential uh, because they had come from the same world that he had come from. He appreciated the Gentile brothers and sisters, but there was something special about having people that knew the language he was using, that, knew, that shared his background, that had been in synagogue, that had heard the same lessons, that had celebrated the same traditions, that used the same language. And when he became a Christian, he, that, was, that world in some ways was cut off from him. People rejected him. They wanted him away from him because Paul had betrayed his heritage. And to see that there are other people that had come along with him that were believers in Christ, that was a tremendous encouragement to him to come alongside him, to help him. And he's saying that they were a comfort to me. It's great when someone who doesn't share your background encourages you, but there is something special about those who know your background, know your history, who come from where you come from, to whom you don't have to explain how you feel all the time. These were the ones who were with Paul and who had been a comfort to him. Now, the word for comfort in Greek means to speak or counsel counsel in a soothing way. Properly, comfort, solace, giving relief, a consolation that alleviates by bringing soothing relief, taking away unnecessary pain and discomfort to bring... uh, um, a soothing, a solace like medicines which allay irritation. See, they came to him and comforted him. It's being there for other people when times are extremely tough. Once during Queen Victoria's reign, she heard that the wife of a common laborer had lost her baby. Having experienced deep sorrow herself, she felt moved to express her sympathy. So she called on the bereaved woman one day and spent some time with her. After she left, the neighbors asked what the queen had said. Nothing, replied the grieving mother. She just simply put her hands on mine, and we silently wept together. Sometimes we need people to help weep with us. See, if we're going to be world changers, we have to make sure that we are comforting other people. Notice that. There's a, there's a, there's a theme that's going on. We're to be cheering others, comforting others. It's about loving God and loving others. You can't have just God and not love others. See, God has designed the relationship that we have with him, which is vertical, to be worked out in the horizontal, to be worked out with difficult people in difficult situations and problem personalities and either people's sins and sufferings and issues. That's where it's truly worked out, not just in the silent sanctuary. It's in the everyday life. 
The names Paul includes at the end of his letters are a treasure trove of information. That's true here, especially. Look at verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician. Luke, if you remember correctly, if you remember or you are familiar with it, maybe you're not, but the author of the book of Luke and Acts, it's two volumes that actually go together. Um, one is the history of Christ and his person. The other one is the history of the early church and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Apostles are written by Dr. Luke, and he is a physician. He was half Greek and half Jewish. Paul is, is re- refers to Luke, and then he says, as does Demas. Now, Demas is a fascinating character, someone that you've probably never heard of. You're not going to hear a lot of Sunday school lessons about Demas. But Demas, we get, uh, he, he's mentioned uh, three times in Scripture. The first one is here, the second one is in the book of Philemon, and the third is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, which is written sometime after the book of Colossians. And I want you to turn there with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. If you can, I'm not sure if we have a page number for that one or not. We don't have a page number for that one. That's okay. But uh, if you, it's in the latter part of your New Testament. And uh, Paul is writing to Timothy in 2, Peter, 2 excuse me, Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, and he says this, and it's an indictment. He says for Demas, and remember, Demas is a traveling companion of Paul. He's with the Apostle Paul for crying out loud. Okay, he's experienced, you want to talk about being close to uh, just an influencer, someone in power, a leader outside of Christ? Peter, Paul is up there. And it says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Deserted me. See, Demas had been a traveling companion of Paul when he wrote to his, his letters to the Colossians and to Philemon. Somewhere along the line, he was seduced by the world and left Paul in order to pursue the world's passing delights. See, this verse is a stinging indictment, a terrible epitaph, an egregious reminder of how the world can seduce even the strongest of us. If you think that you are outside of temptation, think again. Think again. Not just Demas, but we think of Judas. Judas saw all the miracles of Jesus, and yet he still betrayed him. He saw the loaves, he tasted of the bread, ate the fish, and yet he still turned away. But Demas was so seduced by the world that he left everything behind in the ministry. Because the world held a place in his heart, and he failed to recognize the world for what it is, transient. See, many of us in this room have a hard time with that. We are honest. We are honest with ourselves. We love the world. We really do. I mean, we're glad that God has saved us from the penalty of sin, but we really don't want him to save us from the presence of sin. We still want to have the things of this world. We want to have Christ, but we want to delight in the things of the world too. We want to have Jesus and this on the side rather than give our entire lives to him. But see, this world is passing away, as 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We have to remember that there will always be those among us who look great and look like they're truly following Jesus. And it's my contention that if they fall away, they were never truly saved in the first place. They're counterfeits. We must realize that there will always be counterfeit partners. There will always be counterfeit. Counterfeit, not real. Look like it counterfeit partners among us. There will always be those who fail and those who fall. Those who look great on the outside, but who are not. Not that we won't sin, mind you. We are. It's, it's impossible not to uh, for, uh, while we're here on this earth completely. But if we're truly saved, the trajectory of our life should be to follow Jesus, not falling away. 
If they fall away, I'm not sure if they were truly Christians to begin with. We need to remain faithful and not lose heart when those around us leave or desert us. Now, so we need to in- disavow, disavow Demas, but now we need to endeavor to be Epaphras. Look back at, the, at verse 12. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. See, Epaphras helped plant this church in Colossae, and now he's with Paul. He is continuing to pray for his brothers and sisters in Christ often. He was their pastor, teacher, brother, friend. He, doesn't, he didn't hesitate to let Paul know about the Colossians' love for Christ and for one another. And I see if we're to truly become world changers, that it, we have to learn to be interceding in prayer. We have to learn to be interceding in prayer. See, that's what he's doing. He's showing us and giving us an example that we are to follow. We are to be interceding in prayer for one another. God delights in us praying for other people. And if we're to intercede in prayer, then I want us to to really break this down and think what this means. It means that we need to believe that God hears and acts. We need to believe that God hears and acts. Now, it, it really bothers me that we pray and then when God answers, we're surprised. The other day we were sharing is uh, we, we had our mission fest here at um, all of four of the campuses. And we were praying for those that are caught in Islam. And we were praying on Friday night. I mean, people were coming in and out, praying a little bit at a time, praying that God would open the eyes for those people in Islam. And what happened that night, I got an email from a friend of mine who, who is a practicing Shia Muslim, and he asked if he could come to church on Sunday. He showed up on Sunday with his friend. He's been here twice now. He came last week. He's not here this week, or I wouldn't share this with you. Um, but he, uh, when I shared the story in staff meeting that we had Muslims show up in church, that's unheard of, by the way. That does not happen without God's direct intervention. And everybody sat shocked. And it, and it bothered me because in some ways I was as shocked as they were. And I said, why are we more surprised when God answers prayer than when he doesn't. We were all sitting around surprised that God answered. But we, didn't we just pray for that? God, didn't we just ask God for that? And then God answered that? Why are we surprised that God listens to the cries of his people? And why don't we do that more often? Because we don't believe. And we're comfortable. You know, the scripture says that we need to have faith when we pray. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says it this way. You can turn with me if you desire in 1007. But it says in Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, he's referring in this instance to salvation, but I believe that there's also the understanding that can be applied to prayer. We still have to have faith and believe that God rewards us when we do seek and pray and seek his face. That he does reward us when we are passionately pursuing him. Or perhaps a better example is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 through 15. Scripture says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. God answers prayer. 
Not always in the way we'd like, per se. And we must remember that there are conditions attached to, to prayers that the Scripture lays out for us. But when we do them and pray in faith according to His will, God answers prayer. See, the problem that many of us have today is that we don't need prayer. We're sufficient in and of ourselves. I'm reminded of a, a professor a friend of mine who was in Zimbabwe. And he was at a church meeting along with some other, he was a seminary professor and he had some other professors with him. And uh, as this, this big giant uh, conferences going on. The, the, the pastor who is from Zimbabwe is preaching, and the power goes off, which is pretty common in a lot of majority world countries. And um, the power goes off, and, and he singles these, Amer- uh, these seminary professors out, and he says, you know, in America, let me make sure I get this right, he says, in America, everything works, and you don't, have, you don't need to depend on God. In Africa, nothing works, and we need to depend on God. He was saying that you guys are so comfortable. You have everything right there. I mean, and we do. And many of us in our culture, we have everything. Everything we need. A house, apartment, two cars, flat screen, good job, accessible food, heat, air conditioning, great medical care, insurance, etc. What are we lacking is seeing God do great works. You know, there's a story, um, if I remember correctly, of Thomas Aquinas who was walking um, through with the Pope. And he was walking through the Vatican. And the Vatican was showing him all the treasure trove that the Vatican had. He was showing him all the gold and the silver. And if you remember in the book of Acts, there's a point in time where uh, the apostles are, are um, with a beggar. And the beggar looks at him and, and they say to him, silver and gold we do not have. But what we do have, we say to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the Pope looks at him and he goes, the church can no longer say silver and gold I do not have. And Aquinas goes, but the church cannot say stand up and walk. See, we've traded it. We've traded the power of God for our creaturely comforts. We've surrounded ourselves with things that just make us feel good. And then when it gets hard, we pull out. We're not committed any longer. We don't believe that God hears and he acts. See, Epaphras believed that. It says that he is always struggling. Struggling, the word there is agonizomai. And it means uh, striving, contending for, like an athletic contest, striving for the prize. He's struggling in prayer. He's groaning, contending in prayer for the Colossians. He's battling. In other words, he is in a battle for the hearts of men. If we're to be interceding in prayer, we have to understand that we are in a spiritual battle. It's not about just presenting the right argument to people and making Christianity appeal to, uh, to make it look good. At the end of the day, we understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, it's a battle that's going on for the hearts of men. Jesus talks about this when he's talking to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. In Luke 22, verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, the battle that we have is not physical, it's spiritual. That's why I read that passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why do we do this? Why did Epaphras pray? Look at verse, the latter part of verse 12. 
He was praying so that you may stand fully, stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So let's break this down. Stand mature. Stand is pretty basic. just means stand. But the word for mature is telioi. And it means fully developed, completed, perfect, or perfected, having reached its end, its completion. He also prays that we may be fully assured. And it's fully assured is actually one word in Greek, and it means fully carry through and is used of God's power, bringing believers to maximum potential, maximizing or matching their true knowledge of Him. See, why do we battle for the hearts of men? Is that we do that so that you and others might fulfill their potential in Christ. In other words, you might become what God made you for. What did God make you for? What did God make you for? What did he call you to do? He doesn't call you just to sit. I guarantee that. He didn't call you just to show up in church and go through the motions on Sunday. He called you for a purpose, and that's to help transform other people's lives by being faithful and living out the gospel in your everyday life. He is praying. That's what he's saying. I want you to become what God's made you for. I want you to be all that you can be in God. I have a purpose for you. I have called you. I have made you and fashioned you to bring my name great glory. The worst thing to leave on the table is unfulfilled potential. God wants you to become what he has made you for. And what has he made you for? I hear many people say to me, I don't know what God's made me for. I do. Allow me to play the Holy Spirit's role in your life for a moment. See, I know that he's made you to glorify him. He made you to tell other people about him. He's made you to serve other people. See, I want to look back at our text in verse 17 here for a moment. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. We don't know much about Archippus outside of this passage, but we do know that Paul wanted him to fulfill or complete the ministry that God had given to him. Now, what does that mean to us? It means that God wants you to be fulfilling, God wants us to be fulfilling our purpose. Fulfilling our purpose. Now you say, again, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? Okay, and when we think of that, we think of this moment where God speaks to us directly. And we have to hear a voice from the Lord. God has spoken to us generally through his word and what his purpose is for us. I remember reading Crazy Love. I don't know if you've ever read the book by Francis Chan. And he mentioned that he went downtown Los Angeles and fed the homeless one day. Not because anybody called him to. Not because he felt a call from the Lord. He just did it because that's what the right thing was to do. That's what God called him to do is take care of the widow, the orphan, the the hurting. He says, I didn't have a a direct calling that I need to go do this. I just did it. Then he goes on and indicts American Christianity. And he cites this so that Christians say, well, I have to hear, I have to be called. I have to be called. And he goes on and he says this. He says, the church wastes too much time waiting for a word from the Lord. Christians should instead be more active in translating the knowledge they have put into action rather than languishing in fear and indecision. We've created a church culture in America where we assume we do nothing until we hear a voice from heaven. And so, if I go to church on Sunday, the pastor is going to preach a sermon, and we pretty much assume we're not going to do anything radical in response to it unless he gives a really great sermon and gives us steps right afterwards, or this or that, or really, really think that we hear a voice from the Lord. He goes on, as a result... Many Christians or many Christ followers live selfishly while listening to Bible teachings every Sunday, said the crazy love author. This is a quote from Christian Post. He writes that these Christians remind him of the fattest people on earth. 
who have consumed so much food that they can no longer walk. They are fed more and more knowledge every week. They attend church services, join small groups, listen to Bible studies, read Christian books, listen to podcasts, and are convinced they still need more knowledge. Chan explained that continually listening to the Word without applying it has made Christians' ears dull to God's call. That's the very first thing I was taught in seminary before we even started classes, Chan says. The president of the seminary said, look, be careful, because once you can hear the Word of God and do nothing in response, then the next time you hear it, it'll get easier. And the next time, and pretty soon, it will become a habit and a pattern of you're able to hear the Word of God without a practical response. He goes on. That's a very dangerous place to be, and yet, man, that's happening. Every church across this nation, we've fallen into that pattern. Fat Christians. God wants us to be fulfilling our purpose. Now, if we to do that, and listen, I want to encourage you. If we're all, we're, we have to admit, many of us in this room, most of us are fat Christians. We're in this boat together. How do we get out of it? How do we get in spiritual shape? Well, here's what we're going to do. Right here, let's look at it. First of all, it requires us standing on the promises of God means we need to take God at his word and just do what it says. Just do it. Nike had it right. When it comes to the ministry, just do it. Go do it. I told you, I've shared the story several times of Dr. Leonard Rasher, who was the head of the Practical Christian Ministry Department at Moody Bible Institute for 27 years. He was my mentor. And when he was in the 1970s, he went to go preach in the chapel at Moody Bible Institute. And he, if you know Dr. Asher, he has this big kind of scraggly beard, and he always has a toothpick in his mouth when he talks. He's this kind of no-nonsense guy. He looks like D.L. Moody. If you've ever seen a picture of him, that's what this guy looks like. He even says he looks more like D.L. Moody than D.L. Moody did. And this guy is a character. I just can't tell you how much of a character that he is, but he taught me a lot about ministry. And he walked in, and chapel services last, what, 45, 50 minutes, something like that. I can't remember. Uh, maybe an hour. And uh, he walks in, and he was teaching on evangelism. That was what his subject was, and it was something that he was very, uh, very, very gifted at. And uh, he oversaw all the different ministries at Moody Bible Institute that students were involved in. And he walks up, and every student's ready. They got their Bible out. They're ready to take notes. They've been in classes hearing this great man of God talk about the evangelism and what they needed to do and how they needed to do it, how they could connect with people, and everybody's prepared. And he walks up with a toothpick in his mouth, like he always does, pulls it out and goes, go do it, and put it back in his mouth and walked back into his room. The student sat there stunned. He said, and, and they sat there for like 30 minutes trying to figure out, is he coming back? Is that it? And they realized, no, he's right. Just need to go do it. That's all we need to do is go do it. We've heard enough messages on it. You've heard. You guys have heard in this room. You have heard more Bible teaching than some people have ever heard in a lifetime. I guarantee that there are people that are in China right now that are in the underground church that have received a page that they have ripped out of a Bible that they could hold to themselves. They have nothing else, and they're doing more evangelism than we are. Why is that? Is it because we're too, we're too comfortable? We're too afraid to mess up? We need to take God at his word. And he says, go do it. I'm going to take care of you. Fear not. It's going to be okay. I'm with you. 
That's why he says it. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am what? With you! I am with you! You don't have to fear. Don't be afraid. I'm there. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to help you through this. I'm going to give you the power. I can give you the words to say. I'm going to empower you. Stand on my promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, we need to stand on these promises. That's why Paul says to them, read, the tr- read this letter to the people. And then after that, give it to them. It's the word of God. I want you to stand on what it says and do what it says. So we need to stand on the promises of Scripture. Secondly, we need to silence the voices. Now, I, I say silence the voices, I, and I, I use that intentionally. We need to silence the voices in our own head that cause us to doubt, and we need to silence the voices of the critics who are surely to come. Because we're going to have people criticize us, you're going to doubt yourself. Don't. That's why we keep going back to the Word of God, letting the Word of God wash our mind. I mean, we have critics everywhere today. I mean, I feel for kids growing up, with all of the Twitter sphere and Instagram, the critics abound and I hate reading the comments under, art, under articles on the internet. It's mass ignorance. There's so much bitterness, vitriol. It's nasty and scathing critiques. If you want to become what God wants you to be, then you need to be prepared for the voices to increase. And if you stick to his word, listen to his voice, you'll be fine. Thirdly, step out in faith. Faith must overcome your fear. Faith must overcome your fear. Don't let fear paralyze you. Let your faith inspire you. God wants us all to take that step of faith, to step out trusting in Him, believing Him for all that He has for us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Step out in faith. Step out in faith. If you feel that prompting at your workplace to talk to someone, don't ignore it. The doubts will come. Just do it. God's going to use it. I guarantee it. Take that step. Be awkward, because remember, awkward is awesome, all right? Be awkward. Step out in faith. Lastly, stay the course. Stay the course. You know, there was a, uh, some of us in this room, we went through some training for a a program that we were looking into do, we're still looking into do a few years ago. Uh, It was an evangelistic training program, and when we did it, they gave us several instructions. They said, when you do this at your church, people will come the first time. The second time that you offer it, no one's going to come. It's just, we've noticed it's a pattern. We don't know why, but this is what happens. Don't give up. Do it a third time, and you'll notice that God's going to use it, and people will show up for this program. He said, and I was talking to someone about it, and they said, well, at our church, we tried it the first time, and they said we had great results, and the second time no one showed up, so we scrapped the whole thing. Because they, and they missed a blessing because of it. They missed a great blessing because they refused, and they didn't. They failed to stay the course and hold on. That's what I, I, I've been reading uh, Winston Churchill's biography. This is one stubborn guy. And he, he spoke to a classroom full of students, and he said, here's my advice to you. Never give up Never give up. Never, ever, 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 ever give up. And he's one of the reasons we won World War II. And he's famous for saying this. He said, this is the definition of success. And he understood staying the course. He said, success consists of going from failure to failure. There's supposed to be another failure in there. It consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Because we're all going to fail. We're all going to have critics. And when you go into ministry, when you start to serve, when you volunteer for something, let me tell you right now, it's not going to be easy. You're going to deal with people that, that you don't 
get along with very well. You're going to feel unappreciated at times. You're going to feel neglected. You're going to feel marginalized. There's going to be personality conflict, conflicts, and people are going to criticize you. Welcome to ministry. Paul did it. I can't imagine what he went through. I mean, he had his, all of his country, countrymen turn against him. He's got fledgling churches, churches. He's got immorality going on in the churches, people getting drunk at communion. I mean, people having illicit sexual encounters. And, this, and he got people disagreeing with one another. And yet he still continued to fight on. He didn't give up, and he could have just given in. But he didn't. He stayed the course. And we are to follow that example. We are to stay the course. Success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. If we're going to be world changers, that's what God has for us. And all of us can do it. You can do it. God has called you. He set you apart. And he wants to use you for his glory. Do you want to be a world changer? Do you want to be a world changer? I'm, ask, I'm actually I'm asking this question for real. Do you want to be a world changer? No, I'm comfortable at home. Thank you very much. I hope you do. Because it only takes one. The people that inspired me most and helped change my life, changed my world, weren't people that were up here all the time. They were grandparents. They were coaches. They were teachers. They were everyday people in my life. One was a youth pastor. And you know what? He wasn't even my youth pastor. I used to work at a grocery store when I was in high school. I was a stock boy. And, the, and I, I knew I was rebelling against God. And there was a youth pastor from the local church who came in. And every time he came in, I knew he was going to talk to me. And I, I would see him come in. And if I saw him, I hid in the back room. Because I knew that he was going to talk to me about God. And just invite me to youth group. That's it. He didn't like share the Romans road. He didn't go through anything. But just his mere presence that he would care to share, to talk, to invest in me. That, was, that went a huge way with me. That was it. That's all he did. That's all it takes. Be faithful, intercede for others, serve, and give your life knowing that God is going to use it for the glory of his name. Follow Christ, take up your cross. He died to save you from your sins and give you new life in him, and now he wants you to die for him. Die to yourself and pursue this new life in him for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Father, God, we want to be world changers. We want to submit ourselves to you. Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do with us. Lord, may we, as we go into our workplaces, as we step back in our marriages, as we go into these, these difficult sometimes situations in which we find ourselves, whatever it might be, may we be faithful there. May we bloom where we're planted. Lord, we know that you can change our circumstances, but a lot of times, Lord, you want to shape our character in the midst of our circumstances. So, Lord, we come before you right now asking you to work through us for the glory of your name. Lord, forgive us for, for being, being fat Christians, for not doing what your word says, but, Lord, may we go forth today... Uh, praying to make a difference, knowing that you are the God of second chances. You are the God that allows U-turns. You are the God that gives dreams. You are the God who replenishes uh, what the locust has eaten. Lord, you are the God of second chances. You are the God of hope. And we thank you for the hope that we have in you, knowing that you have loved us so much to die for us, to give your life for us and transform us that we might have new life in you. And yet, Lord, you don't want to leave us where we're at, that you want to transform us and shape us to be more like the person of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, please continue to do so and glorify your name in our lives, each, each of us, Lord. And we look forward to seeing what you're going to do in us and through us, that we might praise your name. And all of God's people said, amen.